Welcome, everybody, to the Pierce Point Podcast. Today, we are walking right into Luke chapter 15, and I have to say, this is a favorite chapter of many preachers because the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and of course, the parable of uh, the the wayward son, right, is uh, the prodigal son our favorites in sermons. So we're going to be we're going to be taking a a look at these verse by verse. Um, and as we've been doing over the past few podcasts, we're going to interject some of the commentary on these things, some of the comments that you all have made through the email or through the talk it over section on the Uversion Bible. We're going to interject those pieces. Uh, into the conversation as we go. We really do love the fact that you're a part of the conversation, and we would love to have you more a part of the conversation, so keep those comments going. Um, uh, But without further ado, we're going to jump right into verse 1, and I'm going to ask what stands out to you, sir. Well, I like the fact that, first of all, uh, this chapter is rich in meaning. I mean, it has so many things going on. Uh, in, in the stories, but we, we notice in, in uh, chapter 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. I, I think that we, that we see uh, many times where Jesus' words and his teaching, I think, gave some of these folks hope that, there, that God was still for them. You know, the, the, uh, the Pharisees of that day had had completely disowned these people. They, they, they had a, in some of the Mishnah writings, some of the oral law, they had written that, that they wouldn't even allow their rabbis to teach a wicked man the law even. They didn't even care if he, if he knew what the law was. They had no, Just uh, no idea. Let him go. They had no idea of trying to bring him back into fellowship with God where Jesus comes along and he's obviously trying to bring them into fellowship with God. Yeah. This was a drastic difference to these guys that were listening. So it isn't any wonder that they were coming near to hear him. Yeah. I mean, you have a rabbi or perceived as this rabbi figure in in Christ, and he is, as we read in Luke chapter 5, he has this, uh, he goes to this reception with Levi who gives this reception to uh, to all this great crowd of tax collectors, remember in chapter five. So, so you have this great crowd of tax collectors that come, and Jesus goes in, and and he's reclining at the table with them. So, so you have the leaders of the 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 Jewish world who won't touch these people, mm-hmm. won't even teach them the truth to to help them change in any way. And you have Jesus all the way back in Luke five verse twenty nine, um, having uh, joined them. For yeah. this great feast, so we we've got that picture, and he he sits down in verse one and says, "Now all the tax collectors and the sinners uh, were coming near him to listen to him, and like you just pointed out, nobody else is going to teach mm-hmm. them. So mm-hmm. so they're coming. I I find it interesting that if we if we rewind back into chapter fourteen. Um, they these seem to be the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame that were invited in to the wedding feast or to this banquet in that parable mm-hmm. uh, in the previous one. I'm not I'm not trying to make a connection that might not be there. I'm simply saying that when we look at how it plays out in Jesus's ministry, these were the people nobody wanted. Yes. And when Jesus goes out to invite 
the, the his own people, and they're giving him excuses why they can't go. They bought land. They did all these other things, and they, they've gotten married. They can't come to the wedding feast. The the group that um, that the master goes and invites is anybody and everybody, the sinners, the lame, the poor, the blind. Jesus is welcoming these people mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to his mm-hmm. his ministry. And I just think if we miss that, we miss a we miss a beautiful component of his love, of his yeah. grace. Oh because verse two really sets that in contrast. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. Yes, of course <laughs> saying, they did. this man receives sinners and eats with them. So so notice that from that previous parable. He invites those people. They have excuses, but as soon as they see that the tax collectors and sinners are invited, now they're mad. Yeah, they don't want anything to do with it. What in the world? (laughs) You can't have it both ways, guys. Either you don't care to be at the party or you do and you just want to be in control. And I think we see that they just want to be in control. You know, it's ironic to me that the words that that Luke records here, this man, that what they were saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them, while that was meant to slander Jesus, it it has probably been some of the most cherished words of people trying to find God. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just really that treasured words by people through throughout the ages that this man receives sinners. I I just they certainly meant it as slander, yes. as as it's clear in here, but my goodness, he turned it around and those words have become a source of inspiration for a lot of people who are seeking God. If we if we recall the the Good Samaritan story, this is in keeping. This is keeping in line with exactly the problem of the Good Samaritan story. These people see people dying on the side of the road, and the only thing that they thing that they can do is move to the other side of the road and label them right mm-hmm. sinner, mm-hmm. tax collector, and move on. And Jesus, the Good Samaritan, the ultimate Good Samaritan, he comes for that which is broken, that which is poor, that which is destitute, and he picks them up. And uh, and so they don't. You know they don't want anything to do it, yep. do with it. So they're grumbling and they're saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then verse three. So he told them this parable, and we're going to get into that first parable. Any further thoughts on no, that? I, or? I think it's just it's just it's just amazing to me that Jesus does what he has done so many times. He has taken what someone has said meant for his harm and meant to slander him, uh, uh, obviously, and just turned it around. And now he goes in to say, and let, let me show you about how this works. And I, I just love the way that Jesus taught. It was, it was, uh, it had to be, uh, a little bit surpri- surprising to these guys that he didn't, he didn't strike back at them. He didn't, he knew what they were saying about him. Yeah. And uh, he didn't strike back. He says, hey, here, let me help you understand. Yeah. And this, this may be fun for us all, but the, the Greek is really interesting in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to, and the word we have in our English Bibles, most of our English Bibles, would be grumble. Uh, but it's interesting. Some translations actually actually translate that to mutter. And so they began to mutter, saying, basically, I mean, picture it this way. They're sitting there going, you know, this man is receiving sinners and eats with them. And the reason it appears that Jesus is willing to just kind of move on is because 
they're not willing to be bold enough to speak to him about it. They're muttering, they're grumbling, they're 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 like kids who are just you know dissatisfied that they now can't be a part of the game because well they rejected the game to begin mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's important. Another thing I just kind of looked at this, uh, but the fact that verse one says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him, it actually does tie in with 14. Notice notice we break that at a chapter 15 mm-hmm. break, but it actually makes sense now. It's just kind of conjecture on my part, but it makes even more sense that when he is talking about the tax collectors and the sinners, he really is putting them in that feast there that that this whole previous story where they are the this group that you go out to the highways and the byways to grab they are in fact the crit- the cripple the blind the poor mm-hmm. and the lame it's this is all the same meeting this is all the same situation that's going on here so uh, there there may be more to that yeah. than i first thought i okay. love that i love that <laughs> so the lost sheep this is the first one and and what is really important about our understanding of these parables is to keep in mind that Jesus does something unique here, and that is he fires off three parables at the same time, which means, not because it's three, but because it's a multiple amount of parables, a a quick succession of parables. He has a really key agenda. Now, there could, there definitely, I think, is a census planeur. I think there is a fuller meaning. I think there are all kinds of practical applications to this, and we'll probably explore those. Mm -hmm. But there is a really important uh, thing that all three of these have in common. So let's Mm -hmm. just keep our Mm -hmm. eyes peeled for that. So verse four says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Mm -hmm. Let's deal with that first one. What what are some things that stand out to you? Sure. That is, uh, first of all, sheep herding was a common common trade in that that day. There were a lot of sheep sheep herders, and this man has a hundred sheep, which at that time it would be any it'd be like a medium-sized flock it wouldn't be really wealthy man but it wouldn't be uh, destitute either uh, and it wouldn't be it's not strange that a sheep would get lost there they wander they wander probably more than any other animal and and uh, uh, what, what is what seemed I'm sure strange about it is that it would probably have been strange to leave 99 of them unprotected and to go after one so that's a that's a very uh, unique concept. I think uh, that either the safety of the ninety nine was assumed that they were safe, or uh, that that the point of the parable is the rejoicing over the one, not not necessarily to the neglect of the ninety nine, but the one is the. So we'll we'll have to kind of. Yeah open that up a little bit more, but it, but that would have seemed odd, I think, to, to sheep herders to say, wait a minute, 
I, 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 chance, I stand a chance of losing 99 sheep if I go after this one. But Jesus said, yeah, what man among you wouldn't do that? And they're like, I don't know if we would or not. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and, and what have we learned from these particular men? They won't even take care of human life. Exactly. Right? Maybe their own sons and daughters, but but uh, in the healing of, say, the woman with uh, the one who, woman who was uh, bent over, she was she had this disease. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to touch her or care for her. And, and Jesus points out that they're, they're not a people caring about human life. So that's a pretty tragic thing. Maybe they won't care about their sheep. So scholars would call this a parabolic discourse or a series <laughs> of parables, right? You know, $50 words to communicate a series of principles, a series of parables. And all of them have to be filtered through the context of what we just read in verses one through three. And that is tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, but the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble and saying, forget these people effectively. Mm -hmm. So the very first piece of this, he says, what man among you, if he had a hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the 99 to open uh, uh, in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost. So, so where the sinners and the tax collectors before represent the um, represent the, the the poor, the blind, and the naked, you know, of the previous parable. Now they're actually the lost sheep yes. here. Okay, and so he seems to be putting in this this in the framework and saying, okay, although they have come to hear me, I'm going to address the ones grumbling, okay? And so he addresses the ones grumbling by saying, what on earth? Mm -hmm. Why is it such a problem for you that I would care about those who are lost? As you pointed out at the outset, you guys won't even teach them the law. You guys could care less for these people. And this seems to be the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. I should go after them. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just go after them. I love the fact that it says, and when he found them, he lays it on his shoulders, mm-hmm. rejoicing. Mm-hmm. There is a there's a lostness of this sheep that requires being carried mm-hmm. by the Savior back yes, yes. to the position of wholeness. I, I, there has to be something there that would say, you're not going to make it your own way. You, you have. I need to come and get you. Yeah. Well, Jesus has literally come to these people to get them. I, I just think that that's yeah. beautiful. This was the opposite of what these guys, the, the tax collectors and the sinners, would have experienced, as you've said, with the Pharisees. First of all, there, the, you, I, I, I can imagine that at some point they're wondering. They have to be. Is, is he talking about us? Is this us? Is he saying that uh, th- those sheep? They knew sheep herding. It was a common thing. They knew the sheep are not going to save themselves. Exactly. They know they men, and and as we said, rabbis at the time, they were they weren't going out there looking for sinners to to right. to help them, uh, but. In this in this parable, Jesus is, is I, I can just imagine him saying, "Is he saying that God is seeking us out? That God is looking for us, actively looking for us? These guys that are that are that are in the church now don't even care. Don't they don't want anything to do with us? Is he is he saying that God is coming for us to look for us, actively see? Just a beautiful picture. Yes. Of, of and and I. 
I think that's what he was saying. Absolutely. But I can imagine that some of these guys had to be saying, is this us? Yeah. Is he yeah. talking about us? Yeah. So, so on, the, on the side of the Pharisees and, and these kind of, uh, you know, disgruntled, grumbling sorts, I, I, I feel like these people are so daft that they're going, what's he talking about? And then the sinners are going, I think that's me. I think I'm in his story, which is your point. But it's amazing. You have two groups of people listening here. I think he's addressing the Pharisees. I believe that he's addressing the Pharisees to kind of show them what they ought to be doing. And yet you imagine the sinners and the tax collectors that are overhearing it going, I think he's talking about me. I think yeah. I think I'm the one he came for, which is a that's a that's a want or a um, that's a uh, that's a welcome that they haven't felt in a very long time. Here's another interesting thing that I find in this first piece that he says, um, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends mm-hmm. and his neighbors, saying to them, "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost." You notice in this story, he doesn't call together the sheep and say, "Here's your buddy," yeah. right? <laughs> he instead he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and and this really seems to communicate a picture. Again, we've got to be careful in parables. We've got to be careful not to just make them symbolic of anything and everything we see. At the same time, they are symbolic of something, mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. and our, our the art of interpretation, the, the the task of interpretation, is finding out what they do represent. But in this case, it would appear that, and and I'll prove this by by, you know, the very next line. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that is, it seems he's talking about not only the angels and everybody that is with him, but even the great cloud of witnesses that stand mm-hmm. um, to to return with him one great day. The scripture talks about Jesus coming with this, with this great entourage. And it would seem that we have people like uh, we just have all of this great cloud of witnesses. It's just all that we uh, seem to be able to conclude from this. And so here's what he does. He tells all of his friends and all of his neighbors, and he invites them. He says, rejoice with me, for mm-hmm. I have found my sheep, which was lost. Now, that picture was intended to represent, I believe, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, I can't get much clearer than that. Exactly. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, what does that mean and what does that not mean? This is a this is a fun This is a good one. Thought. What are your thoughts on verse 7 at least for the heaven piece and then we'll, well jump in deeper. I, I think that if if you look at this the way that that it seems to me and this is, I'm going to emphasize the word seems that Jesus was saying, first of all, the Pharisees and the scribes who had complained about these guys coming to Christ and that they, that, that there was joy. Jesus said there was joy when this sheep had, had been found. Yes. And if they were able to equate the, the sheep that had been lost with a sinner they had no joy when a when a when a sinner came to them. They they had, as a matter of fact, they would reject it. They weren't joyful when tax collectors and sinners even drew near to Jesus. They complained about that. So I and 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 I I think that uh, the, these these 
Pharisees had to, at some point, I, I, I think, because they were, they were listening, we'll see down here that they were actually listening to all of this. And they, they just said, wait a minute, is he saying we should be joyful? They, they <laughs> may have said the same thing they, that, the, uh, that, the, that the tax collectors were saying. The Pharisees are saying, is he talking about us now? Yeah. Is he saying that we should be joyful That's over these point. guys? I, I, I don't, you know, so it's very, I, I love this story. It's going back and forth. And Jesus is using just a few words to really incite a lot of teaching here. Yes, absolutely. I, I love the idea that, and, and it's a complicated idea, but I love the idea that he says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who yes. repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It is important for us to not read into this line, uh, questions that really uh, didn't arrive on the scene of theological history, if you will, until some 15, 1600 years later. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea was he was, nobody in that crowd was asking the question, does he actually mean that there are righteous people? This is that's a Reformation question, by the way. And so we're reading what we would be <laughs> no, doing yes. there is reading a 1600, 16th century, 17th century question into the first century. When what we need to do is uh, read 21st century questions into that and say, what is it that he's getting at here? It is not to contrast these two people uh, as though one does exist or one doesn't exist. He's simply saying there is going to be more joy in heaven. Oh, over the sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who need no repentance. Those people are there. Those people are rejoiced. That's all fine and good. Notice all 99 are sheep yes. is my point. Yes. He yes, doesn't exactly. say now there's yes. one sheep and 99 goats. That's the, that's the yes. point that I'm trying to get at here. And so he, he simply is draw, he's pointing to this beauty that says, do you know how much I love it when sinners repent? I just... All of heaven jumps up and down with yes, me. Yes, right? absolutely. And and these Pharisees don't see it that way, as you rightly pointed out. They're, they're disgruntled. They're grumbling. They're mumbling like, how dare you eat with them? What if that brings them to repentance? Yeah, yeah. You should want this, but they weren't willing to touch that. Absolutely. And go there. So the, the first parallel, the first parable is this idea of this lost sheep. But we roll right into it without breaking anything with the lost coin. Yeah. Give me some well, thoughts. Let me, let me, I, I did one more quick thing on yeah. this. I, I really love the fact that Jesus, in, in, in uh, verse number uh, 7, changes the story. He stops talking about sheep. And he starts talking about people. sinners and righteous people. Yes. And, he's, and so sheep don't need to repent. You know, sheep sheep don't have any repentance. <laughs> well, maybe neither. they should, but, but that's not neither here nor there. <laughs> so, it's very clear, I think, that those uh, Pharisees, while they were uh, they were guys that were uh, uh, strictly zealous for uh, adhering to the law, they weren't stupid. No. They had to look at this and say, "Wait a minute." Yes. He is talking about it. Is he saying that we need to repent? <laughs> yes, is that what awesome. he's saying? Or that we should be glad when sinners repent? I love the story. Yes. I, I, I love it. It, it is no wonder why after parables, people were like, 
kill him exactly <laughs> because because they're wondering this now before we jump into the lost coin i do love this that mike van fleet in uh in the talk it over section on the U version said rejoice and celebrate with our brothers and sisters in christ when they turn away from their old life of sin and accept god's grace and mercy thank you jesus mike gets it that's exactly right, right. what are we yes. supposed to wow. do rejoice when they yes. turn that really is the heart of this uh this uh chapter so the lost coin, write in, I mean, notice verse 8, or, right, it, okay, just like that story, i just going to jump right into the next one, yes. or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. Now, that's a confirmation of something I shared just a second ago. But in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here, here we have some interesting pieces of a story, and that is instead of 100 is the round number of sheep they use, yeah. now it's 10 silver coins, and she's lost one of them. So each time we've got this, this situation going on. Uh, this time it's really fascinating because it says that she lost it. Now this is where reading too far into para uh, parables gets us in weird trouble, as if if this is supposed to be talking about, and it is, people who are lost and mm -hmm, returning, mm -hmm. God has not lost anyone. No. Right? That's no. not the point of the story here. But it is it is that it is lost, and this just happens to be how Jesus communicates it. So yes. I think that that's a, a powerful point there. So uh, what I, are your thoughts I, on this? Actually? I like the the comparison of, of this these coins to a lost man so that so think about this and this is just if the coin was lost men can certainly be lost they were and and they say well the the coin wasn't that wasn't any fault of its own well that's true but you you think of i mean uh many people understand that 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 death through and sin came through adam to us right. so in a sense now in an, in a sense uh, uh, and I'm taking t taking liberties with this, is that in a sense, while we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it started it started in the garden. It started in the garden. So in that sense, but the lost coin and the lost man are are, are like they're both lost. Right. Uh, it's uh, it, it it was uh, uh, I I just see a comparison or, or similar uh, similarities to that. I. Uh, it, it it's just amazing to me because Jesus is going to show them once again very quickly. Yes, I, I'm not talking about coins here. I'm yes. talking about people. Absolutely. So so if we're if we look at this, I guess with a little bit of a critical eye, we know something about this woman that um, that Jesus. Jesus tells a story about, and that is, or at least we can deduce something about this woman, and that is that she's probably a widow, and here's why. When she finds her coin, she doesn't call to her husband. Mm. She calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Now, why do I even bring up that idea? Because 
this really has a reference. This really seems to have a reference to, and so I'm, I'm going to connect who I think the widow is here instead of God. I think the widow is Israel. Mm. I think she has, mm. I think she has been uh, divorced from her husband because of her waywardness. She has been widowed. She's been written a certificate of divorce. This happens in Jeremiah, by the way, yes. of the Israelite people. She's lost her coin, meaning she keeps losing the people that have been given to her, her children, which Jesus says he wants to gather together under his wing. Right, And so she seems to have lost this. But when they are found, when the coin is found, what she ought to do is rejoice. Okay, So I think the connection of the widow has a little bit to do with with Israel. I think it has to do with what she ought to do. And the contrast is what she, she does as well as what the angels would do. And the contrast is what the Pharisees are not doing. Mm -hmm. And that is they're grumbling. They're not celebrating anyone. They don't care about human life now. And all we're doing over and over, Jesus is pointing out the really... Uh, wicked nature of these people's hearts. They they have really lost sight of what is valuable, and so he points out this and says, "If you were a shepherd, you'd get you'd go after your sheep. If you were the woman who lost the coin, which you have lost all of these people, you would go after them and find them, and you would rejoice when that when it was found. But you don't do it. So I don't know. I think there's a lot to that. I story. think there is, and I love the the comparison to the people of Israel because. Because this woman does something, first of all, she does something to try and get the coin back. She, mm-hmm. she tries. She, it says that she, she, uh, she lights a lamp at, 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 uh, and, and she should be sweeping the house and carefully search until she, until she finds it. I, I, I just see this whole picture and imagery of a lamp and the light that she used to find the coin yes. and sweeping the house and all of this. It's, it's just really a lot of symbolism that Jesus is saying clearly here. Again, these are people. These are people that are lost. Yes. These are people. And, 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 and the church of that day wanted nothing to do with these people. They yes. didn't even want Jesus. For, they didn't care about Jesus that much. They weren't concerned about him necessarily. They thought, we'll just discredit him by saying, oh, yeah, he hangs around with sinners and tax collectors. So yes, awesome, absolutely, awesome stuff. In this. I do think the sad part about this story is that Christ had come to make these people the light of the world, to go in search for that which is lost, and yet these people want nothing to do with it. So they don't even have a lamp if they're not careful to to search for their lost coin, which is yes. tragic, yes. right? But but the people of God would be the people who carry a light around and they would find that lost coin and they would rejoice in that. So verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we see that mm. parallel again. And now... Well, we might have yeah, to jump into it. this one do though. It. I'm anxious to hear what uh, th- so Jesus says in the same way that there that that there's rejoicing over a coin that's found yes. in the same way I tell you there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who who repents. Yes. So are we to understand is Jesus saying here that there is a rejoicing in heaven when someone repents when a sinner repents? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I whether it seems to be. Yeah, and whether or not that rejoicing, there there are people who believe that the that the phrase in the presence of the angels is some sort of a an expression that means in the presence of God, um, regardless of whether or not, regardless of if it is literal angels or in the presence of God, it is in the presence of God. Sure. That's where that's where this great uh, cloud of witnesses would be. But the but the truth still remains that the rejoicing happens every time a sinner repents. Now, I want to take that even further, not to go beyond what the Scripture says, but I want to take that further in this connection that the Scripture tells us that God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble would be a people who repent. Not They're not proud and saying, I don't need any repentance, but they're the people that say, you know, it's it's the story. You know, the story that we've read many times, where where the man stands beating his breast, not even looking to heaven, and says, and says, you know, I, I'm a sinner. I am a broken individual. He's not identifying himself as much as he is confessing his sins and running back to God. And and his humility says, I'm not worthy. And, yes. and in our human nature, we are not worthy, whether people want to agree with that or not. But right here, it seems that if I take that and I put it with this, what I see is that I believe not only is there rejoicing in heaven when somebody comes to know Jesus, I think that there's rejoicing in heaven all the time when people live, Christians live a life of repentance. I think when we come together on Sunday morning, right before our our uh, our moment together where we where we look at an expression of communion. Uh, when we come together and break the bread and drink the cup, um, I think heaven is rejoicing in mm-hmm, the repentance mm-hmm. of his believers. I think that I, that's I think happening. So, yeah. That's so, a just beautiful powerful. picture. Just powerful. Okay. So the big section of this oh, yeah. <laughs> is this infamous story of the prodigal son or the wayward son. And I just absolutely love it. Just to lead us off on this and you'll get why that this matters at the end. Jacob Dolas all chimes in on the talk it over section and simply says, don't be the older brother. <laughs> so great, great insight there, Jake. I know that you uh, I know that you have more to say on this than that, but I love, I love that man a few words there. So very Verse 11, and he said, a man had two sons. Okay. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, there's something to that division, and you've talked about that in past. Um, How did that division work again? Two thirds went to the elder son and one third went to the younger son. Yes. So this guy seemingly must have got the the one third. He yes. seemed to be the younger of the two. So remembering that when we get back to maybe the reason why we shouldn't be the older brother, as Jacob says, we'll, we'll come back to that. But verse 13 says, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, (laughs) "'How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread?' 
but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. And before we get to the response of the father, I just want to walk through those pieces here uh, so that we can kind of mm-hmm. unpack them a little bit more. So yeah. anything in particular standing so out to you? It wasn't unusual, as we've talked about, it wasn't unusual that they would uh, uh, grant them an inheritance before the death of the father. However, th- this, this, is, this, would have been a, this would have been a heartbreaking thing for this father because... Because essentially what this son is saying, now, in general, when they would grant the inheritance to someone, to a, a son before the death of the father, it is because that the father wished to retire from the affairs, the management of the affairs of the household or the farm or whatever it was that they were, they, they were doing, and the son would take it over, which would be a joyous thing. Absolutely. But in this case, in the gist of what this son is saying is just give me give me my part now so I can get out of here. Uh, I'm going to get out of, out of here anyway when you're dead. So let me get out of this now. Mm-hmm. So just give me my money now. Yeah. I, I got to go. I want to I want to do my own thing. So this would have been especially heartbreaking to a father, knowing that this son is not he's, he he's not taking his inheritance and staying. He's taking his inheritance and leaving and being no part of the family anymore. Yes. Very, very, very heartbreaking yes. situation. Absolutely. So so we have the father dividing the wealth. And as you as you rightly pointed out, you have this two-thirds going to the older brother, and you have a third going to the other brother. But it's really important to confirm the last point you made, which is this kind of premeditated plan of not wanting to be under his father's rule comes in verse 13 when it says, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey. Um, he, th- this was not well planned. This was not right, well thought through. Right. This He wanted his father's money. He wanted his portion of the inheritance. And just a few days later, he's going to jump out and he's going to do whatever he's going to do. So it, it just indicates the, the rash behavior Of this younger son, right? And so not many days later, the younger son gathers everything together. He goes on a journey into a distant country. So he he wants to be far off, right? And that one, which is far off, we're going to see that far off uh, importance, that language. A distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now that's a lot more than just those words right there, loose living. Yes. He was a wayward son, very much. He was a very wayward son. I mean, this... uh, this this father, first of all, had to know that this was this was a a, a foolhardy move on on the part of his son. Absolutely. But yet, in the sense that this father was like like God, in the sense that he still allowed this son, he get he gave him the inheritance. He didn't say, "Wait a minute, you're making a big mistake here." Absolutely. Wait a minute, you you know that. You, you know you you know that you're going to go off, and this is not good, and you're not thinking clearly here. He didn't do any of that. It doesn't say he did any of that. He says he gave him his money, yep. and he and he left. So uh, uh, that had to be again such a heartbreaking thing because the father said, "Okay, if yeah. if you want out of here, then you can be out of here." Yeah, and I, I'm thinking about the nature of God in this scenario, and thinking how hard it would be uh, as a finite father mm-hmm. with operating from mere assumptions. This is what we do as people. We would 
say we had two sons, and uh, this is a great analogy, a great uh, uh, thought experiment for two dads who have only had daughters. But anyway, so yeah. let's say we <laughs> let's say we had two sons. What's that like? Anyway, okay, so let's say we had two sons, and one comes to us, and we're operating under assumption, and we're thinking. I just believe that he's going to go and do the wrong thing mm-hmm. with this. Mm-hmm. We can't confirm it or deny it, but we yeah. know his character and we know some of the uh, some of the actions of his life and and so we're wondering but it's all it's all conjecture on our part. Now, let's think about the nature of God. He's omniscient. God knew his people yes. were going to go astray. And yet look at what he does in the garden. He gives us every good thing. Mm-hmm. Every Mm -hmm. good thing. And yet he knows we're going to squander that. I am blown away uh, by the fact that God, in knowing that, as we we accept this premise that God is omniscient, uh, that knowing it, he still blesses us with every good thing, knowing that we're going to ruin that. Mm-hmm. Um, that really does speak to his patience, his nature, and what I would argue is his already formulated plan of redemption, which is, I'm going to give this to my son. I know he's going to make a, a mess of it. And I've already got it in my mind on how I will bring him That's a back to picture. me. That picture yeah. is amazing wow. because it's hard enough for me to do that as a human father, not knowing, but pretty much thinking that's what's going to happen. I would be stingy. I'd say, I know what you're going to do with this money. No way. Mm-hmm. And yet God still gives it generously, even though he knows yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I'm thinking about that character of God. That. So, so we go on with this and he says in verse 13, and not many days later, right, he gathers his stuff and he goes out squandering in a loose living. I mentioned just a second ago that loose living means more than just some weird term. And where do we find it? We find it in the same story, right? Just go down to verse 30 and you'll find, this is our great biblical interpretive method, just keep reading, yes, right? Yes. Verse 30 says, but when this son of yours, this is the older brother speaking at this point, and we'll get there, he says, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and killed the, you've killed the fattened calf for him. Make sure you understand, loose living had a, had a definition. Absolutely. And that was that this, this young man, was a uh, a loose young man. He was he was sleeping around. He was spending his time with yes, prostitutes. Yes. This is this is a bad situation. And in a Jewish culture, it wouldn't have been far beyond their understanding for this to also be tied with idolatry, because the temples of foreign gods usually had temple prostitutes. Yes. So his loose living could have been a whole lot of things. But what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt mm-hmm. was that he was he was uh, messing with prostitutes. Yes. This is a bad situation. It was. So he spends all of his money, and 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 he's feeding. He's taking a job because he can't find anything else to do. Feeding the most unclean animal, according to the Jews, would would be would he's he's feeding pigs and swine, and there there would be they, that's one of the most unclean animals to them. And then to to add insult to injury. Here this here this boy has now he's he's in he's destitute he is he's in he's in a real hurt there a severe famine comes on the land 
So he's just like, it's the whole thing is it's this is going downhill quickly for Went him. Went from bad to yeah. much worse. Really. He he had to take the job feeding swine just to be, and he was so so hungry he would eat 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 the hog slop, eat the eat the, the same thing that these swine were feeding on. He was so he he was so hungry. So the the famine was bad, and and now spending all of his money was his own fault. Absolutely. But then he he's like. Hey, uh, okay, now i got a famine to deal with? Absolutely. I'm starving to death here. Yeah. So uh, we're going to coin the phrase, we're going to be talking about this a lot on Sunday mornings, and that is that term hog slop that Barney just used. So we're just going to go with it because it's absolutely amazing. So so verse 14 is a powerful verse, right? When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country. So, So it went... It went from his own willful exhausting of his wealth in wayward living, in loose living, to uh, a bad situation taking place on top of that. A severe famine occurs in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So now he has no money. It's a severe famine. He's starting to to lose it all. He's, He's starting to be really impoverished. This is a bad situation. Yes. So much so that, like you said just a second ago, he's willing to eat from the pig slop. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And uh, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. That is a, that's a powerful line. Wow. Nobody's giving yeah. anything to him. Um, but he's like eating whatever pigs would, or he's desiring to eat whatever pigs yes. would eat. It's pretty bad. He he was at the point where he would accept even the most unclean animal. He would he would do he would start feeding them, and nobody was giving anything. There was no sympathy for him either. They weren't giving him anything. There was nobody saying uh, it, it, when we when we see this makes me think, and I, I it, it it makes me think of of those that would be destitute in our world today. And 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 uh, at and and thank God that there are people out there that do a lot to help those people who are homeless and destitute and don't have any place to sleep. They don't have any place to go. They're they're. But this guy was in that situation, and he and no one was giving anything to him. No. And 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 he was he was working, but he was still starving. Yeah, and uh, it's just, just, a, just a terrible. Right? He's gotten himself into a really bad situation. Yeah. Now, many commentators have mentioned over the years, and and uh, scholars, theologians, everybody has mentioned the idea that Jesus is using this language about a pig, about swine, because he's talking to Jewish people, and this was unclean. So yes. there is there is a real important. Um, uh, method that we discover here or important uh, piece in our biblical interpretation, uh, and that is that when Jesus is using uh, ideas like this, there is meaning within the words he's using. There is Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. he's trying to evoke even in their emotions when he shares these ideas. So, So when he says pigs, these guys are thinking, what in the world is this guy about to get into? And it really gets bad for this kid. And they sense, the Pharisees mm-hmm. are sensing that this has gotten bad for this kid. Now, verse 17 goes on. It says, but when he, had, when he came to his senses. Now, I, I deeply love this because yes. if this story is about sinners coming to repentance, if it is about uh, a sinner 
that is being turned and the sinner is turning and running back to where he belongs, which would be in the father's house, which would be in the possession of the widow who lost her coin, which would be in the shepherd's fold. If this is the case, one thing that we have to see inside of this is that it actually says when he came to his senses, mm-hmm. <laughs> this this kid, this, this young boy has actually... Uh, Come to the senses of himself. That would be the literal rendering of it, right? So the senses of himself. Now, what leads to him coming to his senses is important, but nonetheless, this boy has to make a decision, right? He has to make a decision. So here's what he says first, and then we'll see what leads to, we'll see that this leads to what made him come to his senses. Here's what he says. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. Now notice this, that he starts writing his speech in a second, Yes. but he has a reason for going to his father and it's located in the speech. He says, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. But notice what he has just remembered about his father. The goodness of his father is that even the father's hired men have enough bread. By the way, there's bread as food again, not just bread, literal yes, bread. Yes. Right? Same thing over and over. It's just a it's a phrase, it's a word that's used to express something. He remembers the goodness of his father. He even works out a repentance message. We're yep. going to see that in a second. And he's willing to go back because of the goodness of his father. This is what is so important about this. Make no mistake in the Christian life, when you turn to run back to the Father, you are doing that, yes, in your own free choice. But what makes you want to return is the goodness of the Father. This is why Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is also why the good news, the gospel, is referred to as the good news. When that message is declared, we remember the goodness of our Father and we return. Yes. We run back to Him. Uh, Now, the question is, do we have to run back to Him? We can talk about that at another point in this. But what we know from this story is that the young man knows of the goodness of his Father and that goodness makes him say, I've decided I'm running back home. Yes, yes. I love the fact that he decides that he is going back to the Father. He's even, he's even running through his head what he's going to say. He is, he is like, as you said, he's, his repentance speech, his message to his Father is one of complete repentance. He says, I'm no longer worthy to even... This is what he's going to tell his dad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hmm. Make me as one of your hired men. Keeping in mind, and, and, and we will see this later, he talks about that they bring a robe and a ring and sandals. This would have been... This would have been in complete opposition of what he said about becoming a hired man. Their hired men were daily workers. Those guys didn't, didn't have shoes. Yes. The, the slaves that worked in the father's house all the time were, had shoes. And this, he said, I'm willing to be a hired man. You pay me at the end of every day. Yes. This guy was repenting. He did not, he said, he didn't say, I'm running back to my status 
as a son of my father. No, no, I'm no longer as, worthy. As a matter of fact, he knows he has no grounds. Absolutely, for such an assertion. Now, here is a modern issue with regard to salvation, with regard to the placement that we have before the Father and all of this. The condition upon which the Son returns is, I'll be a hired hand. I'll be a hired hand who has nothing because I, because of my actions, because of my way of living, I am no longer worthy to be called a son. But the Father doesn't do this, okay? And I want to connect these dots. We're going to read a little bit more, and I want to connect the dots in the the modern problem of sinner versus saint and our identity in God now. So he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I love this. So he gets up and he comes to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Mm -hmm. And the son said to him... Check out how much of his speech he gets out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves... He's not even listening to the He's boy. Not even, exactly. <laughs> right? And you know what? He, he he probably wasn't listening to the idiocy of the boy before. But, anyway, right. but he says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. So the modern issue that comes away comes across in the church is that we tell people, we see the way this young boy returns to the father. He returned in the right heart. And that is, he knew he was unworthy to be a son. This is true. This is true humility. This is genuine repentance here. Okay. But when he gets to the father, you notice that he does confess and he uses his mouth to confess. And the scripture allows for the confession piece but not his self-condemnation piece. That's beautiful, right? right? He doesn't get to say, um, make me a hired hand. He's interrupted and and deemed a son by the father, okay? So he comes in the right position. But one aspect of thought in the modern church would say, you were unworthy to be a son when you returned. You need to keep remembering you are unworthy to be a son now. But this parable doesn't communicate such an idea. This parable communicates that no matter what it is that you have done, no matter what it is that you have thought or what position you think you hold, God says, this is my son. This is my son. This is my son. You notice God never says, hey, boy, you better calm down. You're really just a servant still. You notice the kid doesn't say, I'm just a servant saved to be a son, right? That's a sinner saved saved by grace. He doesn't utter this kind of language. That is our problem. We have this idea that we have experienced people and I'm, I'm warning people that I believe that this is the heart of a Pharisee here. And that is, we realize that their, that their uh, pride can get in the way. And so we overcompensate and make people grovel, even though they're sons in the father's house, yes. so that they can remember how bad they were. 
sure, we were all sinners. We all fall, we all fall short of the glory of God. But the Father here says, here's your robe, here's your ring, here's the sandals, kill the fattened calf, and we're going to celebrate. Yeah. That's beautiful. That me. is that is beautiful. And I think I think, Nathan, that everything that you've said is borne out completely in, in what the Father did when he puts this robe on him. He he is he's he's not making him an hi, a hired hand. He's not he you're you're a son now. He's setting you're him back. apart. He said he said you are my son. I, that that was honor. The ring would have been a signet ring that would have given that boy. He would have represented in every legal obligation. He could have represented his father. Yes. He represented. That's what that was about. The same. It would have been like a power of attorney. He would have represented his awesome. father in everything. And then he puts shoes on him. The the slaves that were in the household that lived there with him, they had shoes. The hired men didn't. He's like, no, you got you. We're putting shoes on you. Yes. You're a son. Absolutely. You're a son. You represent me. Yes. You're not a, you're not a hired hand. No. So then verse 24 Beautiful. comes in, and it really drives the point home. And, and this is going to bring up a, a modern question of biblical interpretation that I find troubling. Um, it's, it's modern, meaning it's a Reformation idea, but it, it is still very prevalent in the, in the church today. Verse 24 says, For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the modern idea would say something like this, that God... So, so we have a thing in, in Christian life called the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. And the Bible would tell us very plainly that the order of salvation is confess with your heart uh, and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. That means that the order is confession and belief all by the way in an unsaved state and you will be saved. The Bible also teaches us that those who are saved are born again, and they are filled with the Spirit of God. Romans says if we don't have that Spirit, we don't belong to God. The reversal of the Ordo Salutis has been promoted in the church today that says this idea, that regeneration must precede faith. And the reason why is because people argue that sinners can't respond to God's grace. They would, they would assert this in so many different ways, but one of the common ones is that dead men can't do anything. Dead men can't do anything. The problem is that the Bible doesn't bear out this idea. Mm. Look at who this son is declared to be. Same Bible, by the way. Yes. Yes. For the son of mine was dead and dead. has come to life. How did a dead son return from a foreign land? How did a dead son return to his father's house? All of this, by the way, running back, coming to him with a message of repentance, knowing that he doesn't deserve anything. He actually just really wants to even be a hired hand, knows he's unworthy of it all, but he comes back all while dead. And his father's declaration is he was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. The reason why I point this out is because dead does not mean dead the way people think it right, means. Right. And I'm not just 
redefining the word when I want to redefine the word that way. I'm saying that verse 24 proves dead doesn't mean dead the way we say dead means. This young boy was dead. Every one of us is dead in, and here's what the Bible says, you are dead in trespasses and sins. It does not say you are dead in your consciousness. It does not say you're dead in your will. It does not say any of those things. None of that contradicts the fact that the gospel must be spoken so that you remember or know the grace of God that turns your heart. Absolutely. All of that is together in this grand story. But what we see here is a once dead son got up, returned to his father in repentance. He did not plan to save himself. Right. He knew he couldn't, but his father saved him. Yes. His father gave him a ring. His father gave him everything that was necessary. And this dead son says, I have sinned. I've sinned against I've you. I've sinned father. against you. Powerful. And, that, and, and, and the whole thing, start, it start, it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. I, uh, this is an unbelievable uh, story. It's just a great story. But now we get to uh, another Another picture, prodigal son. Another prodigal. And <laughs> yes. uh, it says... Uh, uh, starting at verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. I often wondered why he didn't just go to his father and ask him. Yeah, mm. but even even more pressing, and I want you to continue, but even more pressing than that, remember the context which started these parables. Yes. Remember, it was all a bunch of sinners and tax collectors that had come near to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees heard the party going on inside and began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners. (laughs) So what's happening here is Jesus goes, oh, by the way... Pharisees, you've entered the story. Yes. Yeah. You're the older brother. Exactly. Okay. And they're like, is he talking about us? <laughs> is he us? talking about us? And he has made it so, so blatantly obvious. It's, it's, it, anyone would say, uh, he was a, this is a son, but he didn't go to the father. He exactly. went to a servant to begin inquiring what's going on. Verse, verse 20, 27, and he said to him, Your, this is a servant, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. Yeah. Now, before we get to the father pleading with him, who informs him of the return? It's a servant, which we know throughout scripture has referenced the prophets, has referenced these people over and over. What we have is there are people who have nothing to do with this system that are that are saying, Jesus is here. There are people who have nothing to do with this system that's saying salvation has come yes. to our house. Yes. The servant has come in telling everybody what the party's yeah. about. And the older brother is still a stubborn goofball. Yeah. Go for it. I think that the servant may, may, I'm just going to throw this out there and you, and uh, we can kind of go through it, but it, it, you know, he may have even been a Gentile for yeah. all we know. Who knows? So, Who knows? But anyway, it says, uh, but the, but the son, the older son, he, he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Which is a weird way to celebrate exactly. with your friends. But, <laughs> but when this son of yours 
came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes that you brought out earlier, loosely living. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, the the father, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead. He was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Absolutely. So, so what an amazing, amazing uh, wrap up to the story because we see that Jesus brings back in the Pharisees and here's here, we're going to see in just a second how this ties in so beautifully with what the main point of chapter 15 is. So first of all, uh, verse 27, he summons him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. They become angry or the, the, the older brother becomes angry, which represents the Pharisees and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. You, you realize that even Jesus is pleading with these people, these Pharisees. He wants that none should perish. He's really disappointed that they keep rejecting. He came first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, right? But you you get all of this imagery. And then verse 29 says, but he answered and said to his father, and you, you illustrated this in your reading of it. But he says, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. This is effectively what the Apostle Paul says when he says, according to the law, I was faultless. He didn't neglect a command of God's, Mm -hmm. but that didn't mean he knew the Father. He knew the commands. He did the stuff. He he really was good at law-keeping. And I believe that they were really good at law-keeping. And yet, you have never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends, which again, is there's a lot in that reference, more than I have time to mm-hmm. go into mm-hmm. here. But verse 30 then goes, but when this son of yours, not your brother anymore, not your brother anymore, <laughs> did, did he just like he cease? Did you get a divorce? You can't do that, yeah. by the way. <laughs> like what is happening? When this son of yours came and he has to, he thinks he has to remind the father, this is what's so bad. Uh, if you in your prayer life, this is total just <laughs> sidebar instruction. If in your prayer you think you need to remind God of the wickedness of the people that have hurt you, you're missing the point. Yes. God knows what they've done. You don't need to remind them of that son of theirs, right? And picking on them. So he he's reminding the fathers, do you not know what this guy has done. So this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You kill the fattened calf for him. He is so infuriated with the return of this boy and the celebration that's going on in the house that he can't take it. And of course, the father doesn't say, go to hell. Yeah. He actually says, son, son. Yes. Yes. What is Jesus' heart towards the Pharisees? Sure, he's going to call them a brood of vipers. Sure, he's going to be dealing with them in a very harsh way. But he says, son, Jesus' heart for them is that he wants them to know what is true. Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You were the ones to whom the prophets and the law were given. Yes. <laughs> it was all to you, and you've missed it, right? But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has now been found. Now, if we think back on what we read before, we can see a common thread through all of this that something was lost, sure. 
Sure. It, this whole thing could be presenting the idea of what lost means. Maybe. But the, the thread that we begin with and the thread that we see throughout and the thread that we end with is the idea that if the lost return, there should be celebration. Absolutely. And not grumbling and resistance and rejection. Because what that shows is you don't actually love. You know nothing of your father's heart. Absolutely. This this son, this this older son, so represents the Pharisees. And so it, I mean, if, if you think about the, this, look, look at what he says here. He, he says, I have not, I, I've not broken one of your commands. I've not hmm. neglected a command of yours. There was a sense that this older son was obedient in, in a sense, uh, yet very far from the father's heart. Hmm. He, he certainly didn't seem as though that he loved the father in this sense he it was a he he was a perfect illustration of the of the pharisees and 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 these were the guys that were angry that Jesus were was talking to tax collectors and sinners yes. they, he's got to say look you are this you are this guy his story just shows that they this this son lived in the father's house the same as the other one Yet he failed to understand the father's heart for mm-hmm. him, and and in the Greek, Nathan, you're going to love this. The same the, the, when he called him son, the Greek it's child, child. Yes. yes, he was his child. This is endearing. Endearing. It was a term <laughs> of endearment for this young man, and and he the tenderest affection. Uh, and the, yet he lost. was his child, and he's lost, and he's. He, he's, t- he's taking the fact that he did everything that the father said. And, and look, you've never done any of this for me, but yet this, your son comes back. He, he's not worthy to be my brother. He's not worthy to be your son. Yes. Unbelievable. Yes. yes. In, uh, in chapter 14, verse 30, um, and in 15, 2, and 18, 11, and all the way in Acts 17, 18, we see this, the, the term this, right? This son of yours, the term this is used derogatorily. So it's like, it's, it's, it's meant to be uh, a derogatory statement mm-hmm. that comes next. And so we, we can see that right here too, when he says this son of yours, right? There is a way in which that is read commonly in the Greek that just says he really is pointing his finger. He is not listening. He won't recognize him as a brother. He won't understand what's actually going on here. And the Pharisees have done this very thing to the sinners and the tax collectors, right? Mm -hmm. They've gone, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. Where did these people come from? They were Jews. They They may be sinners and tax collectors, but they were, uh, well, maybe even Samaritans, right? As many would, would conclude. But the point still remains that they were part in in some way of this covenant promise, and they don't want anything to do with them. What a sad situation that's Very here. Sad. But unlike the widow's neighbors, unlike the shepherd's neighbors and his family that came out to celebrate the return of the one out of the 99, out of the 100, or the one coin out of the 10, right? Uh, in this situation... Nobody but God, nobody but the Father, well, and the servants of the house seem to be celebrating that sinners are coming to repentance Mm -hmm. because the older brother 
is grumbling. Absolutely. In the corner. Yeah. This is this is really an indictment against us if we are not joyful yes. about people coming to faith. Now, this is a pop culture reference, I think, for today, but just recently we we had uh, all gone through the media cycle of Kanye West yes. coming yes. to faith. And and to be honest with you, I have no idea what his faith is or isn't. Right, I know what he's professing. Yes. Okay, and my view of it is this: that one sinner returning should come at the rejoicing of the people of God. Absolutely, that's what it should happen. That does this mean that we don't still walk with that brother or? Uh, watch them as they're walking through their life to see if their faith is genuine and real and see if their life uh, produces the fruit that the scripture tells us that it's supposed to fruit uh, to produce. Of course, we're supposed to walk that out with sure. them. But rejoicing is the beginning, right? Repentance and coming back to the Father's house, that's the beginning of the journey, not the end of exactly it. Exactly right. And so we ought to be a people not knowing what his, what his uh, you know, final state will be. We ought to be a people who say, he professed Jesus as Lord. He's confessed him. He's believed in his heart. Um, He will be saved. Now, what comes next uh, is the matter of, I believe, Christians and close friends to a person like Kanye West. But we ought to do no different uh, to the person, we ought to do no different to Kanye West than we would do to the person who walks in our church on any given Sunday and says, I've given my life to Jesus. Notice how we celebrate that, and we post it on our church's social media page that we say, we had so many people come to know Jesus today, but with Kanye West, we're all jumping in a seat of criticism. Skepticism. Skepticism. Oh, yeah. What what, what are we doing here? Well, it's funny. We we don't do that when the people are our own, but when it's a celebrity who we have a lot of doubts about, we do that. Here's the best thing to do. Celebrate with their profession of faith and then walk alongside them and see how it's Absolutely. playing out. That should be our MO. I, I um, love that. I love it. In our life. So this this whole chapter has just been absolutely life-giving. It always is. You can see why it is one of the most commonly preached stories uh, among pastors. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We'd love to see uh, what you see in the parallels, who you see as each character in the story, um, how you see the three parables tying together, maybe even how you see this chapter tying with chapter 14. We'd love to hear, as we we always say, points of agreement, points of disagreements, questions, uh, and any comments whatsoever. We really enjoy this time, so you can send those uh, comments to piercepoint at gmail.com, piercepointchurch at gmail.com, nathanfrankhauser at gmail.com, or barneyestas at yahoo.com, or you can post them in the comment section on both SoundCloud and Facebook. We want to hear from you, so keep those comments coming. God bless you guys.